Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'll get into today's guest. Welcome, folks. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. I'm very excited for my guest today, Melvin Gravely, who is the CEO of Triversity Construction Company. Melvin, how are you today? I'm great, Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's been good just getting to know you over these last few weeks. Oh, I'm so excited to be able to speak. I'm excited that we're going to be working together on a separate project. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you, your company, your background, and and how you got to where we are today? Sure. Uh, Traversity uh, Construction Company is uh, headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio. We are a commercial builder working with large, complex customers on their ongoing construction needs. We've got about 100 people, about $100 million in in, uh, managed revenue, and I bought controlling interest in 2009, became CEO in 2010, and that's who we are. Cool. And what's the most exciting part about the construction business for you these days? Well, the most exciting as in uh, irritating is probably the uh, materials supply frustrations we're having right now. Uh, we call it exciting because it's moving every second price, delivery times and all of that. But the most exciting thing about the business overall is not about the construction part. It's about the impact part. You know, what we can do for the families of the folks who work for us, what we can do for the communities that we work in. Um, that's what gets me fired up every day. And, um, and quite honestly, it, it just it's just part of the DNA of our organization. So that's what I get fired up about. That's awesome. Well, building a company from, you know, to hundred people, getting it there, continuing it, having that impact has obviously a lot of stories behind it. So I do want to ask you about that component. Uh, one thing, so I know you just wrote a book and so I'm just going to look up my book. So according to your book, you are black. Is that correct? I just, <laughs> and this is for our, li- for our listeners at home and you've been black all your life, apparently all, all, my life. <laughs> all your life. Okay, great. So uh, you just recently wrote a book called Dear White Friend. Tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah, Dear White Friend, think of it as a, a, a series of letters that I wrote over the last 18 months to my white friends. And, and it was my way of bridging the divide between black and white and everything in between. It's a direct and pointed conversation, but it is in a tone that is friendly because I, I mean this. I'm writing to my friends. And the response so far has been fabulous that I've struck, struck the right tone, a sense of urgency around this gap that we've got between us and how it seems to be widening even, how it's tearing apart our nation. But yet I'm talking to friends and trying to get to solutions. So I'd say 40% of the book, maybe even more, are uh, things I'm suggesting that we do. 
That's how you should consider it. So it's warm, but pointed. And it's really a series of letters, literally written as letters to my friends. Yeah. And well written at that. Like you could de- definitely feel like the, the intention around it. And one of the, re- you know, for, for our listeners, for you listening, you know, as Melvin and I were, were sharing and the project is in October, we're going to be having a diversity and inclusion conference and Melvin's going to be speaking at that experience, talking about his experience there. But I believe as, as leaders, we're beholden to be able to drive society forward. All of our work has community impact. And, uh, you know, there is a business case for diversity inclusion. There's a business case for being like societally good. But I think for us to be successful leaders, we need to understand the perspectives of those around us. And that's what I really took away from the book, Melvin, was that it shared your perspective growing up in respected positions, but also feeling, you know, out of place at the same time. And, and something that me as a, as a white person hasn't had to deal with because typically we're the majority. So, you know, from your experience, and if we talk about people of color in workplaces, you know, what, what is your perspective on how do you see that? How do you see that affecting employees? And yeah, we'll start there. How do you see that affecting employees? Yeah. Just that mindset. To me, this is, you know, we've got a podcast, a strategy and leadership. And, and I got to tell you, the last 20 months uh, uh, of history in our world has highlighted something that I don't think we're ever going back from. And that is, I think we're new in a new era of racial awareness. And as leaders, we're going to have to be finding a new filter to send our leadership models through so that we can be leaders of all the people. I I think there's a leadership model that suggested if I lead, I can lead all the people the same. And I'm telling you around, particularly around race, sexual orientation, and gender identification, I think we're going to have to be leaders to all people in a way that is much more empathetic, i.e. putting myself in the shoes of another person and really understanding how they're coming to me. It's going to have to be much more culturally fluent. We're going to have to be more comfortable as leaders talking to different people from different cultures and being comfortable with how that exchange might go. And so as leaders, we've just got some work to do if we're going to really be leaders of all people. And if we're not, I got to tell you, I don't think it's going to be, and I'm telling my CEO friends, if you can't be CEO to all the people, you're going to have trouble leading in the future. Mm. I don't think that the genie's going back in the bottle and all of a sudden people are going to say, it's okay for me to leave my race, my gender, my gender identity at home. They're, they're coming to work with all of that and they're showing up in a way that's going to be less politically correct and less, less amenable, less accommodating. And what are we going to do as leaders to make sure we get the best of everyone and create an environment for everyone. That's our new challenge. Mm. Yeah, I think that there's something really interesting. I mean, interesting, reflective more than anything is putting yourself in your shoes. And I think most leaders would want to do that. And I think, you know, well-intentioned, I'm going to speak for myself, you know, well-intentioned in all of those things, but also recognizing as leaders, we have blind spots. Like we think we're doing well and it's not until we get to the sort of ground floor that we recognize, be like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm like missing a lot of those points. Well, and I get a lot of people saying to me that, you know, I wouldn't do that or I wouldn't allow that to happen to me or I wouldn't put myself in that position. Those are all judgment statements, because when you see a person in a situation asking how might they have gotten there is a fair question to ask. You know, and I use this with my black friends as well who say, 
well, they ought to know better. And, you know, speaking of white people, and I said, well, where, where would they have learned different? Where, where would they have learned what their words mean? They're in an echo chamber, just like we're in an echo chamber oftentimes. And, and so I just think empathy is just going to be both ways or, go, or always uh, is going to be much more important as a leadership tool, especially leadership of people than it has been in the past. Mm, absolutely. Well, one of the things that the, the filter and then the conditional leadership, that's one of the thing that, oh, I love you got a mug about it too. Like through COVID, I found that that was such an interesting uh, perspective because you had everybody like sort of go to work. They did their work at work and then they had their home. And then when COVID happened and everybody worked from home, their home life like intertwined, like you might have kids in the background or you might have like a messy house and, and people's situations played to it so much more. And then, so I just find that interesting because now obviously what happened over the past 18 months or so, how the world has changed, that's the the situation got put in the place and by no means saying that the situation didn't exist before. It's just way more visible. And then the thing I really loved about what you said is that people are going to be less politically correct. And I think that's great in the sense that it helps people be more authentic. And Gary Vaynerchuk had a video around why he swears. He's like, because I don't say I care about employees. I say I give a shit about them. Well, <laughs> I think I think for business, I think we it's important for us to be really open in what we need to say, because ultimately that's what you expect of your senior leaders. If you had your people muting themselves and dumbing themselves down, you wouldn't get the best results for your business. You wouldn't get the best results for your community. You wouldn't get the best results for your employees. So why would we do that as a society? So we like worry about offending people. I don't know what your thoughts are on that whole concept there. Right. No, I get it. But here's the challenge. You know, are we are we as a society really ready to have candid conversations? Right. And, and, you know, you you spoke of what happened over the last year and a half or so. Think about this. People went home before all of the social unrest primarily generated from this country, but that permeated to other places, including Canada. Now they're coming back to work and that genie's out of the bottle and they're not going to put up with what they used to hear. They're not going to put up with what they used to see. And it's going to happen in droves now in different ways. And so I'm not sure as leaders or as people that are not in leadership role, are we really ready to be authentic sitting next to each other have we built those muscles of authenticity of acceptance of openness it's going to be incumbent upon leaders to build a culture that allows people to express themselves in a way that is healthy for them and healthy for the organization and i'm not sure we've worked that muscle what we have worked is this is how we roll and if you can roll like that, then you can work here. I don't think that's going to work anymore. I don't think that single monolithic kind of approach. So we're struggling with that internal to our own organization. You know, I'm a black guy and I tell my team all the time, I am CEO to all the people, not just the black ones. I'm CEO to all of them. And I have to be empathetic and open and build that culture. And so what we've worked really hard to do is to continue to point people to our values and our purpose. And I say this all the time, if you align with those values and you aspire to that purpose, you can work at Triversity Construction. You may have right-wing thoughts about political things. You may not believe in getting a vaccine, but if you subscribe to these values, you can work here. And building that environment where the employees know that guy doesn't believe like I believe in on politics, but these six, I'm sorry, five values we're all in alignment on, then it builds an opportunity. Still not easy though, but it builds an opportunity for us to be together. 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the the things that guides me maybe informally, and I won't use the actual term, but it's like when you like mess with people, you know, like the kind of people that you want in your life, those are kind of the values, you know what I'm talking about? So like you got to be surrounding with yourself with those people and then building a diverse team means that you, even if you don't have the same political views, it's in fact, the diversity that I believe makes a better team. You don't have to agree with all of it. You just have to be open to hearing it and then not be defensive about it. But for those that are interested in engaging in that conversation and being part of what it looks like to lead for everybody, do check out the Diversity Inclusion Summit that we're going to be putting on uh, October 21st. Melvin will be talking again. So you mentioned being not just the CEO for your black employees, which makes tons of sense. I'd like you to take a minute and say, you know, for the other black CEOs in, if you don't mind, in, in the U.S., in Canada, like leaving in this time as a person of color and person of color is challenging. You've got all the time, all of those barriers. I don't know if you've got some words of wisdom or just some experience or things that's taken you through and we can go from there. What I'll say is I try not to take more responsibility than I would if I was a white CEO. I try not to. It's difficult because people come to you and they want to heap the situation on you, especially when it's around race, especially if it's around race and black people, like it has been in our nation for the last 20 months, for sure. Some people would say over the last four years. But um, so I try not to accept more because when you accept more responsibility, it can weight you down. It can make you triple thing. So that's number one. I try not to accept more than than is due me. No, but the, the biggest thing is, is that I, I speak my truth. As you mentioned before, I am authentic with people. So some of my white CEO friends, for example, were afraid to make a statement to the company around some of the things going on with racial justice around George Floyd and some of those things. I was not afraid to make a statement about that. I was not afraid, to, but it was a balanced statement of my heart is broken. I'm concerned about this, but I, 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 I didn't go so far as to say, defund the police or using slogans of Black Lives Matter. I went back to our values again and said, this is inconsistent with who we are and our mm. purpose in, in, on this planet. And I want to remind them about who we are. I'm just as likely to speak out on other things, again, not publicly, but at least to my employees. So quite honestly, I don't think we, any of us have a corner on it. But if we, if, if you don't take more responsibility, then then you should for what's going on or for responding to it and be your authentic, consistent self. I think you'll find your way there and you'll find the right words and you'll find, and, and people will come to know that's who that person is. Let me, let me just give you one more example. And I know this is probably going a little long, so you just cut me off when you're done. No, you're perfect. Keep uh, going. I wrote this book, Dear White Friend. Before it came out, I had to explain to my employees what I'd done. And again, I returned to being authentic. And what I said to them is, it is unlikely you will agree with everything I wrote in this book. I'm going to do everything I can to disconnect what I'm saying from this organization. But we all know that I'm synonymous with the brand that is Triversity Construction Company. And all I can tell you is, is that I'm speaking from my heart based on my experiences, being the authentic leader that you called me to be. And I am the CEO of all of you. And I continue to remind them of that. That authenticity, I hope, goes a long way. I've gotten a lot of feedback from my employees, all sides of the aisle of political uh, leanings and such. 
Uh, by the way, the book has nothing to do with politics. I don't bring up politics in the book because I think politicians have made it divisive for us. I think they're playing us into that. Um, so I'm just trying to be as authentic as I can as a leader, as a person, but always keeping in mind my job is to be a leader to all the people here and to be empathetic and to listen and to understand their situation. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, I mean, from a leadership perspective, you know, book aside, obviously politics aside, because that's not part of it, but the, the uh, essence of it aside from a leadership perspective, I think it's, there's a really a couple of great lessons here. One is, is the communication. You took an action and before you took that action, you communicated with your people and the way you described it to me, it wasn't like I'm up here, I'm communicating it down. It's I'm next to you and here's what's happening around us to let you know that that's happening. That you took a, a stand for what you cared about, but it was consistent with the behaviors that you had set out on the outset. So it wasn't unusual. It wasn't like you just came out of left field doing this thing. And it's in line with actions of a leader. You, you are leading in your way. You're like, I'm a leader. I wrote this book because that's what there was to do at the time and what there is to do. And that's how I'm taking a stand. So if it's weird to you, then you're probably like, don't know me very well. And so it shouldn't have been a surprise, regardless of what the content is, because, you know, it's in your brain. It's stuff you've been living for 45 years. And I just think that there's whether you write a book or not, leaders listening, I think it's important to, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk. And, and back it up with action. And if you do that, people are, they're going to keep following you because that's why they were probably following you in the first place. Melvin, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you you ticked all the, all the buttons, right? I, here's what I don't think they can do. I just don't think you can be subtle. I just don't think you can, can lead everyone in the organization and be silent when, when such a big item has hit the plate. You know, again, I get pushback from my white friends who say, well, where does it end? Should I speak out on homelessness? Should I speak out on child welfare? Should I speak out on? And, and it's kind of a silly question to me. This issue around race, first of all, is, is such a construct, such a deep construct in, in um, our history. And, and second, it's in your organization. It's in your organization. And and it's affecting culture, whether you know it or not. So I just don't think leaders of the future are going to be able to be silent. I think they're going to have to get smarter. I think they're going to have to work on their communication. I think they're going to have to keep their authenticity out there. I think they're going to have to become more culturally fluent and especially work on their ability to be empathetic, not sympathetic, but empathetic. Mm. I think it's the superpower of leadership. I think empathy is the superpower of leadership because I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm not feeling sorry for where you are, but I am like, Damn, I get it. Like, I get how you got there. Still messed up, but I, I get how you got there. And here's what I can do. Here's what I, where I can meet you to help you on a path to someplace else if that's where you want to go. But that empathy is critical. Mm. And I think the distinction that I really, that one of the things I take away from that is it's not a, like, it's not a sympathy. It's not like I feel bad over here that right. this thing happened. It's right. okay. It's not even I get it's that I, I can, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from because you're never going to understand as much as you want to. I get it. And I, I, you know, I dedicated a whole letter to the idea of empathy because I think we're just missing it. What, what I'm empathetic about is I, I know my experience. Well, that's mine, but yours is different. And how are we going to connect 
if ours are so different without me listening and understanding and, and, and watching and responding and asking questions and growing to understand who you are, how you move. My job as a leader is to get the best out of you for our organization and to hope for the best for you, period, as an individual. That's my job. How do I do that without really being empathetic? Yeah, absolutely. Empathy on the other side of it. And those that are, you know, those that haven't had to live with it for that, for at all their lives. And, you know, the, the idea of like, where does it end? It's like, well, where does personal growth end? Like, where do you stop improving? And it, it doesn't happen. And so looking at it as a, not a to do like an action, Hey, where do I stand on this? But like a, a place to be in a place to stand from, if you believe in it and you don't have to, you don't have to stand for it. I mean, I'd like for people to, <laughs> I think you would too. But they don't have to, they really don't. Yeah. But silence is that icky, weird place, right? Where I don't know what's going on and you're, you're people following you. They're not clear what's going on. And that's when people start disengaging. Cause they're like, I, like, where are they? Like, are they down? And I'm like, what? And clarity helps. There's that, the term, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, that kind of thing. But it reminded me of some listening to this book on, on influence and persuasion and helping people. And there's this kind of, and I don't know what the technical term is, is like the bystander effect. So if there's a car accident and there's a bunch of people around, they will be less likely to offer aid because they'll be like, well, I'm taking cues from the group and I'm assuming as an individual that someone else, like I've pushed the responsibility off to someone else versus if it's one-on-one, -on -one, if it was one-on-one -on -one and you saw an injustice, you'd probably say that's an injustice, like cut that shit out. In a group, I think it gets permitted way more because they're like, well, if the group isn't doing anything, why should I do something or hasn't something been done? And I think that that's a component of the larger problem that affects society. So the question, I guess, would be, how do you see that concept playing out in boardrooms, offices? And if we want, we can go society as a whole. Just a small question for you. You know, I, there's a chapter in the book, and it's it's one of the chapters where I, I make it very clear. I don't think my friends are racist. My white friends are racist, and I don't. It'd be hard for me to be friends with them. But I do suggest that whites are often benefiting bystanders. We can go all the way back to lynchings. Where you, you'd see audiences of people drinking soda and eating ice cream as they watched the lynching like it was entertainment. Somebody in that crowd thought, this doesn't feel right. But they didn't do anything. They didn't ask any questions. They didn't make any change because they were in a group of people. The same effect, this group kind of effect around bystanding creates it. And so I call them benefiting bystanders because when you engage on this topic and you're, you're a, a, a white person, oftentimes you're going to have to put yourself at risk. And if you think about it, like, okay, like logically, why would I do that? If it ain't affecting me, why would I put myself? So I think there is that element you talked about to this, but here's what I say. Then expect to get the repercussions of your benefiting bystander. Because again, I don't think we're going back to a world where everybody's just going to be okay with what's going on. We've got a better way of being a better community, better business, a, a better nation, whether you're in Canada or you're in the US or any place else, if we are working our way toward a place where everybody can be their best, where everybody has that opportunity, that's not just 
equality, but it's equity, and we're moving in that direction. And if we don't want that, then we'll see our situation get throttled down. We'll see ourselves get passed by other nations who can figure it out, other businesses that can figure it out. As you said, there's evidence that a diverse business will outperform other businesses. That evidence is out there and it's clear. So yeah, I do call them benefiting bystanders. And it's funny you use that analogy, but I I articulate it pretty hard in the book because I think I've got to get my friends to see what they're doing. And sometimes they got to make it a thing. They just got to say, wait, whoa, that feels wrong. And, and, and I don't think we're doing another. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it's one of the things I worry about and wonder about you know, in the context of this conversation. It's not a thing I deal with every day is what happened in Minnesota. What happens every freaking day? You know, it's like, it's like, it's not when is enough enough. It's, it's just like, it's just going to keep going unless we do something well, about it. Here's the thing, though. I was in a meeting yesterday, literally yesterday, where we're talking about some reforms to our city charter around electing city council people. And I don't know if you guys have city council, but these are our elected officials who manage our municipal government, right? And they're thinking about some changes. Some of this is they don't use a lens of inclusion. They don't lose a lens of racism. And so they don't see the potentiality. So as this thing's being laid out, one of the things is lower the salary of the council people so that the people, because it's supposed to be a part-time job, so that people don't use it as a full-time job. Well, if you lower it too far, what will happen is only people who can afford to spend 50% of their time doing this, who have the kind of jobs that allow and wealth that allow them to do that, will do it. Well, what will that mean for who runs, who can run for council? Now, on the other extreme, if you make it too high, you have people who have no qualifications and interest. They just want the salary. It's kind of a cool part-time job. So, so I get the, but the conversation has to also include, well, and, and here's what I said to him. I said, has anyone modeled out what will happen if all of these changes happen? Will we have an all-white council in a city that's 47% black? Is that where we'll end up? And so just asking that question, the challenge, no one there was being racist. No one there was like, well, if we change this, we can get a bunch of white council people. I'm not even suggesting that's what will happen. What I am suggesting is we've got to ask ourselves these questions so that we don't have it. So I think sometimes it's just not on their, in their filter. They're not filtering the questions and the solutions through what are the implications on people of color and the outcomes. And I just don't, I, I think sometimes people just aren't thinking about it because they're benefiting and it's just how things are. It's going to be good for them no matter what. And so it's all good. Yeah. If there's change is hard, like we deal with transformation all the time and change is actually the most costly thing as in it costs more to change than it does to stay the same. So what would be the importance of that? You use a critical word, we, and the we is who is the we and listeners, you might've listened to be like, we, Oh, he's talking about, people of color. He's talking about black people. No, he means everybody is the we of us looking at that. And one of the things that I experienced in a, in a facilitation and, you know, we work across the country and in the U S I got the experience that it's exhausting fighting for that. You, You know what I mean? Like I could, I could feel it. It wasn't my experience, but I felt the experience of like, why the fuck do I have to be the person who brings this up all the time? It wasn't me, but I got it. Right. 
And that it's like, it's exhausting, not only carrying, you know, if you've got, you know, different gender or different background or different experience or different color or different whatever, but every time you're the, you know, squeaky wheel or and it occurs as a squeaky wheel, not like, Hey, I'm actually fighting for something I believe in, but it's exhausting fighting for something that you believe in and all the people fighting. I don't know what to say, but all the people fighting is like, keep fighting. We'll keep fighting because it shouldn't even be fighting, but you know what I mean? Like bringing it but I, I'm, I'm not okay with that. I'm just not. That's part of the reason I wrote the book. I need my white friends to make this a thing. Actually, I am now like I'm empowering them through this writing to, to say, oh, I see what he's talking about now. And once you see it now, because you told me you didn't see it before. Oh, okay, cool. Now I'm, I'm helping you see it. I see the system, see the patterns. I need you to start raising a question. So the fight isn't so heavy. I, I had a, one of my white friends once in a meeting lean over and say, aren't you going to say something about that? I'm like, see, now the fact that you leaned over and said I should say something about that means you saw it and you didn't say anything about it. So why don't you say, I need my white friends to stand up for it. But I will say this, just the meeting we were in yesterday, I was the only African-American in the room talking about this new legislation. What if I wasn't in the room? All I said was, let's, let's run it through another filter, which they were very willing to do but they didn't think about it. So that's the advantage. So, so our, uh, another chapter in the book is this kind of the superpower of, of black entrepreneurship or people of color entrepreneurship or women. It diversifies who's in the room of decision makers, whose philanthropy puts them in certain places and helps influence decisions. If I had not been in that room, that comment wouldn't have come up. We wouldn't evaluate the impact on black people and or people of color in this in our city, primarily black people. And we were just perpetuating something. So there is a weight and it's, it takes a lot to fight. We need more soldiers that are not people of color, but there's also some value of being the only one in the room. So, so I got to balance how much I'm fighting because I got to be in a room and how much I'm enlisting other people to enlisting other people to be a part of that fight too. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's the right time, just, you know, I like linguistically, it's like, Hey, let's not make it a fight. Like, let's make it, let's make it a partnership. Let's make it the thing that we want to do. And I know that's just the word we used here. And I think that there's that, that transference of weight is that many hands make light work. So, you know, my challenge and invitation to everybody on this call is, is say, Hey, how can you take some of that work off of your, your colleagues and don't be the one leaning over asking the question, ask the question of yourself, ask this question of your group. And as a company, you know, putting on a diversity inclusion conference, one of my colleagues said, Hey, you know, we're doing this conference and we're talking about it, but like, are we actually like backing it up with our work? And it was, it was like, ah, oh, oh, damn it. It was a damn it, but it was a good damn it in the sense that somebody brought it up. We had to look at it and we say, what are our hiring practices? Like, are we just talking the talk? Or are we walking the walk? What are we committing to do in the future? And it's going to come back around. And some people are going to say, hey, you've got a bunch of white people. Like, what the hell are you doing? You know, anyway. All and, that and, I, and I think, you know, the listen, we don't we're not super successful in a lot of these areas either. Right. I write some stories in the book where our company tried some things just flat out didn't work. I'm transparent about those because I think we're going to fail at things and we're going to try again because if it was easy, we wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't be doing a conference on it. I wouldn't have read a book, written a book on it because God knows uh, I got more things to do than write a book that's got me now talking about race more than I've ever had in my life. Um, so we're going to fail and, and that's got to be a part of, darn, we tried it. 
what went wrong? Let's not analyze what, and we're going to try something new. So um, I think that's fine. As long as you guys are transparent about we're working on it, here's where we are. We got some challenges. This is what we're thinking. To me, that's the journey. Yeah. And I think that I, I think that's a great place to finish up for today. The comfort in failure, because, you know, if you try to, and it's like that accepting the responsibility is you might not be able to change it in a day, but you can take actions consistent that'll get you closer to that future today. So thank you, Melvin, just for your friendship and for this conversation and just for like the space. And hopefully you listeners, uh, I hope you got something from it. I hope uh, you take a piece of it into your organizations. I hope you take a lot of it into your organizations and um, love to continue the conversation in our community. Say, Hey, what did you take away from this? What are you going to put in place and where, what blind spots got opened up for you out of this conversation that because you can't unsee it now, you can't unsee it. And so now, now it's a choice to consciously ignore what is there if you want. So uh, Melvin, how can people get a hold of you? How can people get your book and, and yeah, we'll go from there. They can, get, they can get my book anywhere books are sold, online sources all over the place, also brick and mortar. They can go to dearwhitefriend.com. There's a list of booksellers there. There's a way to contact us there. Um, there's a bunch of information on the media stuff. This will be out there as soon as you share it with us. Uh, we're trying to infect people in a way that allows them to infect their organizations and their community. So, Anthony, thank you you for what you're doing. I look forward to hooking up in on October and doing some great things there. Um, you're doing great work. So thank you. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure and just really thank you. So folks, ladies and gentlemen, people, my guest today, Melvin Gravely, who is the CEO of Triversity Construction in Ohio. Thank you so much, Melvin. I hope you folks have enjoyed this episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. And be sure to check us out at the uh, Diversity Inclusion Summit, October 21st. Thanks for joining us. My name is Anthony Taylor and until next time, bye y'all. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that'll help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it. It'll help your team think more strategically and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's gonna give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus, you can use the code podcast for $100 off. The course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course. Use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.